0: It's Adrienne Lawrence and welcome to TYT's The Conversation. So right now I have a great guest for you, senior reporter for Business Insider, Camila Deschalos. Thanks for joining us, Camila. Thanks so much for having me. So this past Saturday, Arkansas Governor, uh, what is it, Asa Hutchinson? You know, The Republican chairman of the National Governors Association. He said that Donald Trump should not lead Republicans or this country again. What should we take from the statement? Well, it was a really
1: big statement when he made it
0: because at this
1: conference, we asked several Republican governors what their thoughts were on Trump kind of hinting that he would run again in 2024. And a lot of them were apprehensive to make a statement, you know, vocally supporting the president or just opposing the idea of him running. So for Austin to come out and automatically state that he wants to see other candidates run was really big for the Republican Party because a lot of people are really wary to chime in and really give their thoughts on whether he should run or not. You know, recent polls have showed that his supporters and just the American public uh, Republicans still consider him to be a front runner and want him to be the Republican presidential candidate who runs again in 2024. So it was really big that he that the Arkansas governor just came out and just vocally you know announced his you know disapproval of him to try to run again.
0: Yeah, particularly in Arkansas, the place that just seems like it lives and breathes Republican country uh, to step up and say something. So I think that really definitely does say something as you've noted. Um, And the thing is, it seems interesting because it almost seems like Donald Trump is saying something but not. you know, Because he hasn't announced the fact that he is going to be running for president. Yet he loves to openly just say that he's going to be the 47th president of the United States. So essentially, why do you think he's doing this?
1: Well, there could be a lot of reasons why he's putting off making an official announcement. Time and time and again, he has repeatedly, you know, made hints and suggested that he's going to run again in 2024. But a lot of election experts I talked to recently about why he is potentially holding off on making an official announcement said that there's a lot of financial gain to be had if he puts off this announcement. For example, right now, since he's not an official candidate, he can raise money and you know participate in a lot of these super PACs in order to there's no cap or limit or financial limit on how much money he can raise. However, he's under more strict limitations when he does officially decide to announce that he's running for candidate, such as how much money he can spend and raise, he's under more like limitations. So that's One of the reasons. Another one, you know, when I was talking to a lot of election experts is just to kind of build momentum. I think right now, a lot of the Republican Party is gauging how much support is still behind Trump and, you know, to still rally up his base. So this could be two reasons why he's just postponing to making an an official announcement. And even though he's time and time again, he's making these comments, a lot of election experts said one thing is clear, you know, There's no law against him joking, but until he raises or spends more than $5,000, that's when he has to officially register with the FEC as an official candidate.
0: Well, this whole idea and him joking—it's just oh, I am not laughing, and I think there's so many other people out there uh, who are not laughing as well. But it definitely sounds like he's leveraging a grift here uh, to some extent to continue to uh, fill his coffers and get people to donate money. Uh, and what, as I understand it, the Republican Party is the one paying for his legal fees, as it is. So if he can continue to get people to open their wallets and support him, uh, that he's a really big ticket for Republican fundraisers. I'm guessing that factors in?
1: Well, it does because a lot of Republican The Republican Party still sees him as a really big fundraiser for their party. He has generated thousands of dollars for the Republican Party and for candidates. And I think that's why a lot of them have not distanced themselves away from him or are still wary about vocally supporting another run for office or just weighing in on whether he should run. Because a lot of them still see him as a really big fundraiser and as a public figure that's able to generate and galvanize the Republican base. So until he really makes a official announcement, you won't see a lot of Republicans come out of the woodworks to either denounce him running or, or support him running. I think they're really waiting out and seeing what, what he decides to do.
0: Yeah, and it should be kind of interesting in part, just because you know there's something about the man, the fact that his grift is so good that he can get people to pay his legal bills. He gets people to pay him money, the fact that the United States government is giving him an annual salary for being a former president. And essentially he pays for nothing, but he puts everyone in a position where their livelihoods and their lives could be lost. It's quite the compromiser, but in terms of essentially doing this whole fake out in terms of not announcing his presidency or his run for candidacy for president. Or just now saying that I'm gonna be the 47th president of the United States. I guess how do you think that is impacting the Democratic Party in terms of deciding what their strategy will be in terms of who they put up as a contender for 2024?
1: was really important to note is that there's a lot of contenders that Republicans are weighing on who should run for their party. You know, that's one thing that we talked to a lot of conservative governors is that they're kind of waiting to see out, saying, you know, there's a lot of great conservatives out there. They want to see who also puts their hat in the ring to decide to run for president again. I think the Democrats are going to be on the offense because they have to prepare whether he runs or not to make a case of why, you know, to galvanize their base and to motivate voters to come out and support and vote for Democratic candidates that are going to run. So I think for them, it's a, the the thing that they're going to focus on the most is how to strategically, you know, galvanize their base and also come out with messaging that really resonates with voters and mobilizes them to come out. Whether Trump decides to run in 2024 or another person decides and the Republican Party decides to run again, a lot of um, Republicans have been putting out the name of Ronnie Santes who is the governor for Florida, he's also Republican, and saying that could be the second, you know, best choice there. But we really don't know that. I think Democrats are really going to strategically try to plan behind the scenes of what kind of messages will really resonate with voters and what can really galvanize their base.
0: Yes, and it should be something that will all have us all on pins and needles. And so in terms of kind of what we're looking at moving forward with Donald Trump knowing that he is facing a number of investigations and potential charges. At what point, I guess, do you think the Republican Party will try to throw in the towel as it concerns him? Cuz it really seems that the Atlanta DA as well as the New York Attorney General are moving forward full steam ahead.
1: Well, it's funny because I talked to a lot of legal experts about that particular issue of one Republican Party will distance themselves against Trump or even other Republican lawmakers who are also facing their own legal challenges. And the thing is until more momentum is brought against these cases, let's not forget that in Atlanta still no formal charges have been brought against the former president. And so until that really happens, and and again, he's been denouncing this investigation from the, the very start, calling it a witch hunt. Until more charges are being brought and more evidence comes to light about what has really transpired between that call that they are investigating that happened on January second, two thousand twenty-one, until more evidence comes out and until formal charges are, charges are really brought, I think that's when you really see Republicans try to weigh in on this. But for now, a lot of them are just saying they're keeping a low profile, just waiting for you know the tide to really settle and for him to really decide whether to run or not. But you know, this is another reason why some legal experts are anticipating that Trump is going to keep holding off until he makes an official announcement because he is under investigation, um, not just in Atlanta, but also in New York. And there is multiple pending lawsuits against him as we speak. So that is most likely going to factor in his decision of whether when he announces the decision and if he decides to run at all in
0: 2024. Yeah, well, I'm sure he's going to continue to collect all the money he can. Uh, and you know, and speaking of money, in terms of continuing to get people to contribute uh, to your campaign and your coffers and whatnot, while you are under investigation, it's interesting. The essentially the difference in we're seeing Donald Trump continuing to make money and to be pretty much the leading fundraiser for the Republican Party, and then we see individuals like Matt Gates, who, as we just recently learned, uh, he ended up in the red in terms of his uh, friend of Matt. Gaetz, Gates uh, committee campaign and it just really shows you it seems that people are not necessarily backing each Republican member when they are in trouble or is it a matter of what they're in trouble for? It could be
1: a combination of both, you don't really know. I. Also talk to some experts about that, how this can impact a lawmakers or Republican officials um, ability to fundraise when they are under legal investigation. And, and here's the thing, I mean, you, it really comes down to messaging at the end of the day. And this is what experts have told me time and time again, a lot of the Republican lawmakers and even Trump on, on this matter has come to really the defense claiming that you know there's no basis to the investigation. That these investigations are a witch hunt and that you know they're, that they're false and there's no truth behind them. And so I think the messaging that they've have kind of cultivated around their perception perception of this investigation either shows that it's resonating with their base or it's not. And I think in the case of Matt Gates, that shows that he hasn't been able to raise as much money as he has in the past. Maybe shows that maybe his constituents are not as on board as he thought he was. But even to this day, as this investigation is still looming over his head. You know, DOJ has not made any official charges against him. However, it is a question of whether as this investigation under him and you know his associates as it continues to unfold, whether that's actually going to hurt his chances of getting reelected in the future.
0: Yeah, and it definitely almost seems to be the case, especially with all the vultures circling in terms of uh, Joel Greenberg and everyone else who seems to be what testifying before grand juries. But we're gonna have to wait and see how that plays out. Uh, And someone else who also happens to be a staunch uh, Trump supporter, Madison Cawthorn finding himself in that thicket of wondering, will he actually be on the ballot when it comes to these midterms in part because there is a challenge to his uh, eligibility to actually run for office because of his involvement in January. Do you see a lot of supporters essentially backing his play? Or do you think that it's kind of unlikely that he will do well? I think it's still
1: unclear at this point in time just because so much is still up in the air. But I think as you see it's going closer to the midterm elections and as the candidate himself is going to try to rally his base, that's when you'll really see if the messaging and his tactics are really working in order to really mobilize his support group to go out to the polls. Because ultimately at the end of the day, that's what matters is that your message is resonating and that voters really do feel like you are the best representative to represent their communities.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much Camila, I really appreciate our conversation today. And can you please tell the viewers where they can find more information about you and follow you on social media?
1: Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at C DeShallis. And also if you go to Business Insider, you can look at my profile in that under there, you can see all the stories that I've written in the past few weeks.
0: Fabulous, thank you so much for joining us Camila DeShallis, senior reporter, Business Insider. And welcome back, it's TYT the conversation and it is also Adrienne Lawrence. And this time I have for you the congressional candidate for Illinois 7th district and an anti gun violence advocate that is Keena Collins. Thanks for joining us Keena.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, Keena, so you are essentially in these streets doing the hard work as a lifelong activist. Also being that nationally recognized gun violence prevention expert and healthcare advocate, and so you are essentially you are running for your congressional district. What made you want to go ahead and take this step from activist to member of Congress?
2: Yeah, you know Congressman Davis has been my congressman since I was literally six years old. Um, This is a district that I was born and raised in. Um, And like many black Chicagoans, my grandparents came from the south to the north and settled on the west side of Chicago and we've been in this district ever since. Um, Congressman Davis, 25 years ago when he came in, had some progressive values. And over those 25 years, we've seen certain neighborhoods flourish and other ones be left behind. Uh, Congressman Davis is the third most corporate funded Democrat in the House right now. And while everyone has made a conversation out of making Chicago a political punching bag um, around gun violence, they're not talking to the everyday working class people who live in these communities. So I'm running um, to represent them and to change this narrative, but also say that it's time to elect um, a representative who's unbought and unbossed.
0: Yeah, I think that 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 says a lot, the fact that there are too many people out there who are supposed to be lawmakers and leaders, but are essentially filling their coffers with funding from various sources. And so when it comes to work that you wanna do, can you share with our viewers kind of what your focal points are?
2: Yeah, of course, uh, my background is as a gun violence prevention advocate, and I think that we need to tackle that a number of ways. Um, One, we need to understand that poverty is the root cause of a lot of this violence that are happening in these communities. And so having economic development is going to be a cornerstone for how we drive down a lot of this crime that we're seeing. But we also need to make sure that we're funding groups that are boots on the ground fighting against this violence in our neighborhoods and making sure that they're getting the federal resources that they need. And finally, on the federal level, we need to start holding these wealthy gun manufacturers and gun shops accountable. Nearly 60% of all guns that are basically recovered by Chicago Police Department are not even from Illinois. They're from Wisconsin, Indiana, and Mississippi. And so um, we need to push back on this narrative that people don't care about this violence. Um, in our district and make sure that we're holding folks accountable. But really the impetus for why I decided to run was healthcare. Um, I spent my time as a national organizer organizing 20,000 doctors and medical students around single-payer Medicare for all. And um, Congressman Davis has been funded by big pharmaceutical and private insurance companies. And so when we talk about the life expectancy gap in the Illinois 7, and basically people all across this country getting access to healthcare through through a global health pandemic, we need to make sure that we're saying boldly that Medicare for all is the way that we get there.
0: Yes, and I think that's something that is echoed across the country if only we can get lawmakers on board. And so mm-hmm. it sounds like in getting you in that position that there would be definitely hope in pushing that in the direction that would serve us all. And so I also know that you have a proven track record of policymaking, also coalition building. And so can you talk a little bit about your work and your background in that arena?
2: Yeah, so my first piece of legislation happened after, you know, I was organizing on the ground. Um, around Laquan McDonald, I realized that the power wasn't just on the front lines of those protests, it it was in the public policy room. And so in 2017, I wrote my first piece of civil rights legislation um, called the Illinois Council on Women and Girls Act, which was a direct response to Donald Trump eliminating the White House Council on Women and Girls. And essentially, they would advise the governor and state lawmakers on anything that directly impacts us um, and funding that impacts us. The caveat was that um, my, my legislation emphasized protecting reproductive health care and centering the voices of women of color and trans and non-binary folks as well. Um, and it was the first time that, that something like that was written. Um, we basically took on the Illinois GOP. I won, they lost, <laughs> and uh, a Republican governor was forced to sign all of that into law. Uh, reproductive health care, LGBTQ rights, um, closing the pay wage equity gap. um, And creating this council that serves as an accountability metric. And so it was a great organizing victory. I traveled to 68 counties out of 102 in the state of Illinois, building this coalition, and like I said, we, we ended up winning.
0: And in that you had mentioned that you had worked in terms of bringing attention to the death and murder of Laquan McDonald, that 17 year old boy who was murdered by Jason Van Dyke, who was an officer. And I know you had organized the protest in the aftermath of his murder. And so I guess from that experience, which was far several years definitely before this recent uprising what is something that you learned from that in terms of what you can bring, uh, essentially your district moving forward?
2: You know, my district is a plurality African American district. Uh, it's a supermajority minority district, and really, I think we have to grapple with the question here in America about why does it require a viral consumption of black suffering and outrage in order to embarrass and shame the criminal injustice system? Into doing something and holding folks accountable um, when when excessive force is used by police police officers. What I learned is that. Um, a lot of the elected officials on the ground in Chicago refused to speak out against Officer Van Dyke, even though he murdered and then the city concealed um, the murder of Laquan McDonald for 400 days. And you know, you ask the question, why? It's because they were getting campaign donations from the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. And so, you know, what I'm bringing as a as a, the rep, next representative for the Illinois Seven is to say, not only are we not going to be influenced by dark money. Um, in my campaign, but we're centering all of our policies on social, racial, and economic equity and justice. And so that means for all of us, um, when you center the voices of working class people, you lift up the entire district. Um, And so I learned to be very bold on those front lines. I learned that our lives do matter. Um, And I I also learned a lot of our politicians could get a lot of this done, but they don't have the political courage or will to do it. So
0: And it seems that you've definitely had the courage to speak out, and that Officer Van Dyke is set to be released tomorrow after serving just about over three years on a near, what, seven year sentence for second degree murder and what, 16 counts of aggravated battery. Uh, Have there been any developments in terms of maybe calling out what more can be done?
2: You know, we've called on our U.S. Senators, uh, Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin, to continue to push. For federal charges and civil rights violations to be filed against um, Jason Van Dyke. Um, but most importantly, we need to codify this on the national level. Why is it that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act hasn't been passed? The Breathe Act, the, the Mental Health uh, Justice Act hasn't been passed. There are several ways that we could be codifying and protecting the people in this country. And Democrats were elected on a mandate to do that after the murder of George Floyd. And we've seen our party leadership just drag their feet on this issue. It is unacceptable. And, you know, all I have to say about that is that the primaries are coming and people are coming for these seats. And so, um, you know, I think this is a learning moment for us that there are organizing victories that we can celebrate, but that we can't just let up because we have you know a, a house, a Senate and a presidency that is Democrat run.
0: Absolutely. The need to continue to do more and to continue to push back seems ever present and especially the conversations we are having and getting some movement and some change. And so if you were to be elected, what do you think would be the first thing you'd do?
2: Well, the first thing that we have to tackle, because Illinois 7 actually has the largest life expectancy gap in the nation. Um, If you live in the downtown portion of the city of Chicago, you live to the age of 90. If you drive a 30-minute car ride to the, the south side in the Englewood community, your life expectancy drops to 30. I mean, I'm sorry, 60. So it's a 30 minute life expectancy gap. Immediately, you know, we need to put together a task force on the ground in the Illinois 7 to make the case to fight for these federal dollars and resources for the people in the district. But legislatively, when I get to Congress, I wanna repeal the ability for gun manufacturers to not be sued. I think that they are negligent in a lot of the crimes that happened with guns in our country and they are not being held accountable. And so we need to make sure that um, we're codifying in law once again, the ability for them to have an accountability metric.
0: And so in terms of that life expectancy and that disparity there, if he were to get the federal dollars, would it be largely dedicated, do you think, toward the gun violence issue? Is that a main cause or are we looking at environmental racism? What are we looking at as the main kind of causes for this disparity?
2: You know, It's all of the above, right? It's the fact that there are children in my district who have never seen a functioning grocery store. You know what I'm saying? So we have to get grocery stores in the Illinois 7, but it's all of the above. It's eradicating environmental racism. It's making sure that we push for primary care in our district and people have full access to that. It's the ability for people to have affordable and comfortable housing and safe housing. Housing is the number one social determinant of health. So um, this task force that we hope to put together in the first 100 days will be you know uh, fitted with experts in all of those areas to make sure that we're allocating the resources properly to chip away at that 30-year gap.
0: Yeah, Absolutely, cuz that definitely sounds like it is making a monumental difference in terms of serving constituents and also ensuring that they remain alive, essentially to enjoy this life. And that's a very powerful thing that you were working to do and I really, really appreciate all of your work. And so if people want to support your campaign, if they wanna know more about you, to follow you on your journey, where can they find more information about you and your congressional run? Yeah,
2: so they can go to kena.collins.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Kina Collins I L, which is just the acronym for Illinois, or you can follow up us on Instagram at KENA, the number four Congress. Um, please follow along, send a donation in. You know, we're out fundraising the incumbent right now, which has never happened really in a primary um, against him. And we need to keep that momentum going. Um, So please send in donations, sign up to phone bank, do all the things to help us get across the finish line.
0: Excellent, thank you so much, Kena, for joining us. That's Kena Collins, congressional candidate for Illinois 7th District and an anti-gun violence advocate. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.